0: I'm gonna pray really quickly, and then we'll we'll get into this. So, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us all here safely today. Um, I pray that uh, as I teach, as we all learn together, that Your name will be exalted, and that we will, as we learn about uh, the Day of Atonement um, and these various sacrifices, I pray that we'll uh, be reminded of Your Son Jesus and how He is the uh, one true sacred sacrifice that purifies us and cleanses us through his blood and uh, carries our sins away from us um, so that uh, in a very real sense, we get to live at a healthy distance from ourselves. We thank you for all of this, uh, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, today, this is great because I think we're starting pretty much right on time. So uh, a tall order again this week. Uh, sorry about the last couple of weeks um, with the recording not working. My, I think I have a problem with the jack on my phone, and so um, the charging cables are coming loose, which means the lapel mic that I've been using has been uh, popping loose, I guess, just as I wiggle it or something. And anyway, it um, that translated into shutting off the recording. So. <laughs> The the last thing on the recording from last week, I thought this was funny. Was like, "Hey, I'm still recording," and then it it shuts off. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I should have just left well enough alone. But um, but we have a tall order again this week. Uh, so uh, we're gonna try to get through basically the rest of Leviticus, chapter sixteen through twenty seven. But we're not gonna, we're not really gonna talk much about twenty six chapters twenty six and twenty seven. We'll um hopefully at the end say some things about chapter 24, but I'm going to try to tell you why it's not a big deal that we're not moving on to the rest of the chapters because um, chapter 24 sort of sums everything up. Um, And uh, 25 through 27 really just gives some sort of ancillary details, I guess, that uh, aren't central. So um, we discussed last week that the sin of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, um, was on the level of symbols, another fall of humanity. Okay, do you all remember this? Um, that the, uh, the tabernacle, we said, is a microcosm. It's a little mini-world. Um, we've beat that horse to death this semester. But um, the Holy of Holies is something like a little garden sanctuary in which God's holy presence dwelled with his people. And just as sin and death entered the world through Adam's sin, as he's in the garden sanctuary of Eden, he's given clear instructions about how to worship God. Well, I've, I refer to as sacramental eating. Um, well, Adam's given clear instructions. He disregards those instructions. He lets sin come in and defile uh, the garden of Eden, that holy sanctuary place uh, in which he existed with God. Um, and, of course, as Paul tells us, sin and death entered the world through what Adam did there, his disobedience. And um, the same thing happens with Nadab and Abihu. They, uh, they allow sin, they disregard God's teachings um, about proper worship in the tabernacle. And I uh, suggested that they probably tried to enter the Holy of Holies. Um, Without one being commanded by God and two being uh, the high priest uh, and doing all the necessary washings and you know, sacrifices and so on. And so, as a result of their disregard for God's commands, sin and death enter the little world of the tabernacle. And because the priests represent the people of Israel, they're you know, their head, so to speak. Well, then what we see is the fall of humanity yet again. These Adam-like figures that exist in this little garden um, of Eden that's in the middle of the desert, they sin, humanity falls again. And that um, this, uh, this creates this big narrative drama that chapters 1 through 15 of Leviticus has been building up to. Um, there's this tension now because the garden, humanity's fallen into sin again. The Garden of Eden is now God's holy, sacred space is now polluted, and so uh, with sin, it's defiled. And so, um, what we're going to talk about today is chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, and God's resolution, His solution to this uh, this uh, dramatic and tragic event of humanity falling into sin again. And so. um, because we're reading Leviticus, though, against the, the backdrop of the Pentateuch as a whole, uh, I think what we need to be sure about here, what we need to make sure we see here is that the solution to the defilement of the tabernacle, the little garden of Eden in the desert that God provides here in the Day of Atonement, um, has something to say about God's uh, solution for uh, the original defilement of his garden sanctuary in Eden, basically the defilement of uh, the world. And um, this what we see in the Day of Atonement is going to clue us in on how God is going to basically reverse uh, Eden and fix everything and set the world right, purify it again. And in particular, he's going to purify his people in the land. So um, we should be seeing in this uh, pictures of Jesus, that we know that he is that... Um, he is the Savior, the one who comes and purifies uh, His people. He's the perfect sin offering, right? That uh, takes the defilement that uh, polluted the sanctuary and gets rid of it, that polluted His people and gets rid of it, that pollutes the city, the camp, and gets rid of it, okay? Um, he's the ascension offering that carries His people, who carries His people into God's presence, and He's the peace offering. He's the basis upon which we have fellowship with the Father again, uh, and with one another. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these uh, sacrifices we find in Leviticus, and we sort of see this at its high point in uh, the Day of Atonement rite in chapter 16. Um, So let's read uh, the first 22 verses, 1 through 22 of of chapter 16. I'm going to read it from my screen, even though every time I read from a screen, I end up not reading as well as I do if I read from the book. But um, I've got to do it because I have to move through the slides with you all. So here we go. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Check this out. Just a, think about this. Nadab and Abihu, what is it? Chapter chapter um, 10, right? Where they, uh, yes, chapter 10. Beginning of chapter 10 that they they... Uh, go into the sanctuary, defile it, and end up dead <laughs> chapter ten we 're now in chapter sixteen and its been, and it hasn 't been brought up since it 's been brought up again in the very first uh, verse here um, it's, it seems strange why Why is Moses putting this in here right now, something that happened you know a few chapters earlier um, but this is one of the reasons, I'll tell you why, uh, not just ask the question, I'll tell you why. I think what, what he's doing is he's signaling to us maybe one of the things that uh, Nadab and Abihu did incorrectly. They disobeyed God's command and they tried to go into the Holy of Holies because what we're going to see just happen here in just a second. It's instructions are going to be given for how Aaron has to enter the Holy of Holies. Does that make sense? Okay. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Notice the order of those sacrifices again. And this is the we talked about the order of worship last week. Sin offering always comes before the ascension offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments for this particular day. Uh, This particular series of sacrifices and blood manipulation that he does in the tabernacle, he actually dons a new set of priestly clothes. Um, He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram ram for a burnt offering. Again, sin offering and burnt offering. We're going to talk about the goats in detail in a moment. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Aaron has to make atonement for himself. How many people remember the book of Hebrews? This is not something that Jesus has to do, right? Because he's God and he's perfect. Um, There's a contrast here. Jesus is a priest. He's just a far better priest than the Levitical priests. Um, He's a priest of an entirely different order. But maybe talk about that later. Verse 7, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall, uh, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. I'm going to pause there and comment on that for a second. Um, we talked about how the uh, tabernacle is like this cosmic. It's, it's this mountain. It's a mountain, right? It's like Mount Sinai. At the the peak of Mount Sinai, when God was there, um, the uh, uh, there what what surrounded uh, the top of the mountain? Yeah, a cloud. Uh, And Moses meets with God, but he does it in the cloud. And I think we're supposed to be seeing that same picture here. The tabernacle is a little Mount Sinai. It's the place, and again, if it's a little Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai was just another picture of Mount Eden where the garden was, the holy sanctuary of Eden was. And so um, it just turns out that the, the tabernacle, remember, again, is another Mount Eden. Okay, we're back in the sanctuary again of the garden. But... Um, I think what's going on here is that even Aaron can't see God like face to face, really. He's, there has to be some sort of separation. Just like Moses had to enter the cloud to meet with God in person, um, uh, Aaron is doing the same thing as the representative of the people. He's not doing it on Mount Sinai. He's doing it on the mountain of the tabernacle. But um, again, we see a, there's a, this, I think this is signaling to us some sort of limitation, some sort of deficiency uh, in what the tabernacle can provide people with respect to access to God. Let me rephrase that because that was wordy. What I mean to say is that the tabernacle, uh, seeing the smoke here, that... Uh, Aaron has to fill the Holy of Holies with smoke before he can enter it so that he doesn't die, signals to us that the tabernacle doesn't really bring us into face-to-face communion with God. That is, that is yet to come, okay? Um, but uh, it will come, and it comes in the person of Jesus as he uh, performs his priestly work on the cross and uh, in his resurrection and ascension. Um, because the priest, <laughs> Jesus' ascension is central to uh, the atonement conversation, because without him ascending, you don't really have atonement. Um, the high priest has to ascend the mountain to the holy of holies. Jesus has to ascend uh, into heaven, into the heavenly temple. Um, and pre presents himself there bloody. So um, anyway, but I just wanted to make a comment on, on that for a moment. There's, there's a limitation to, to, to what the tabernacle can do in terms of bringing people uh, into communion with God. Uh, Ultimately, it's not enough. All of this looks forward to Jesus. That's the point. Okay, so in verse 14, we'll pick up. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. That means at least seven times that it's a complete and full atonement and cleansing. Verse 15 Uh, We're going to say more about that blood in a moment, and there's more to it. Uh, Verse 15, "...then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins." And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Um, the, the, the tabernacle dwells in the midst of unclean people. Sin. And what, did, do you, who, what, what is it? It's getting dirty, right? It's becoming defiled. What did I say this should remind us of? Last week, I talked about this. The tabernacle is a type of what? Not just a mountain. It's a type of lots of things. That's the way biblical symbols work. It's a type of a particular person. It's a shadow of a particular person. I wasn't here last week, but <laughs> I, if I had this, bet, it would be the incarnation, specifically in John, it talks about Christ becoming flesh. Yes. That's right. That's right. So the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus' very own body. And in fact, if you go to the... Uh, the uh, he, he uh, tabernacles among us, John says, if you go to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us something really interesting about Jesus. He says that, um, that the curtains of the tabernacle um, are a type and shadow, a symbol. They're analogous to Jesus's own body, his own flesh. And, um, but remember what's happening with the tabernacle. It's dwelling in the midst right, of all of these unclean people and their sin. And it's becoming polluted. It's collecting sins. And what does Jesus do? What is he said to uh, have done for us on the cross? What does he bear in his body? Yeah, he bears in his body our sins, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree, right? Um, He uh, took on sinful flesh. There are all these um, uh, images of... The tabernacle of old being fulfilled in Jesus, right? Um, so I uh, just wanted to remind you of that. I think that part's important. Um, so let's go to verse, uh, where did I leave off? Does anyone remember? 20. What? 20. Tw- Thank you, Matt. Okay, 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, in the tent of, uh, in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So we're now on to the second goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. There's, there's a break there. He lays both of his hands on the head of the live goat. This is different than some of the other sacrifices where they lean or press in with one hand. Now he's pressing in with both. Okay, um, And he does something um, here that doesn't happen elsewhere. And he confesses oh, he'll, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And that's it. Okay. So um, I'm gonna. I've made some comments, but I'm gonna. I was just sort of like rolling with it. I'm gonna start get back on script now, but. Um, I'm going to make some comments about this. Verse 16 tells us that the tabernacle is becoming unclean. It's existing in the midst of all these unclean people. Verse 19, um, we read that Aaron takes the blood of the sin offering, um, and he, he does something specific with it. He sprinkles it in very specific places uh, inside the tabernacle and then again outside of the tabernacle. So he, in the courtyard. I'll get to that in a minute. He does this, and verse 19 tells us why, and verse 19 is up here. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Um, So sin's portrayed as this living and active sort of force or thing. It takes on a life of its own. It spreads like a disease, basically. And so it pollutes and defiles the things that it touches. Um, And as I mentioned last week, though, but there's good news with all this because God's provided a remedy. And this is what we're going to see today in Leviticus uh, 16, the Day of Atonement. um, he's provided a remedy in all of these various sacrifices, and these sacrifices include bulls, rams, and goats. And uh, for the sake of time, we're going to focus on the goats. Okay, so um, let me say something about the goats now. Um, the first thing I want to point out about the goats that I didn't mention a moment ago is that um, this is strange. Um, they're both referred to as the sin offering. Verse 5 And Aaron shall take from the congregation of the people. Let me get back to verse 5. And uh, he that's Aaron shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So some scholars suggest that um, we should be seeing both goats as a sin offering, even though one of them, the one that uh, uh, you know is, goes out into the wilderness to Azazel, even though it's not an offering in the normal sense of a sin offering, um, but they're both referred to here. And this is reflected in the Hebrew, apparently, um, as, a, as a sin offering, a purification offering, both of them. Um, and one of the things I think that this probably shows up, it shows, and this is, I'll say this with some reservation, but uh, one of the things I think, if that's right, this might show us, is that um, God's saving work, the saving of his people, um, comes through judgment. That would be a picture consistent with what we see in the rest of Scripture. When God saves his people... He's also pronouncing judgment on sin, but not just sin. I don't like when we say that because sin is not um, something that happens in the abstract. Um, sin uh, is something that's characteristic of agents, human beings, basically. I mean, I guess spiritual beings, too. Um, but uh, but agents. Right. It's uh, there are sinners. There isn't just sort of sin in the abstract. There are sinners. Um, uh there's a, there's a lot that we can say about that. But I think um, one of the th- pictures we get is that, that salvation for God's people means that he also judges sinners, unrepentant, the people who are not among his people. This is one of the reasons it's so important uh, to be in the church because God's saving work occurs through the church in the world. Um, it's, there aren't Lone Ranger Christians. We're saved into the ark of the church. Um, people, so I mentioned this a a few weeks ago, but if you think, remember that the church is the body of Christ. That's obvious. We read all about that in the New Testament. Um, if, uh, if that's right, if you meet someone who doesn't like the church, um, you should, I told you, you should question whether or not they're actually a Christian. You should, some red flags should go off. If they're like, I just hate church. I don't like Christians, blah, blah, blah. You do. Listen to what they're really saying and maybe remind them what they're really saying. They don't love Jesus. They don't like Jesus because this is Jesus. When you look at your neighbor, the person sitting to your left or your right, you're looking at a little incarnation of Jesus himself. You, you, you have the very spirit of God living in you. So um, when people don't like the church, they don't like Jesus. Jesus. Um, And now I don't mean to suggest that people who have, uh, I I use this term, um, uh, you know, with some understanding that it's abused, but people who have experienced trauma and so on. Uh, I understand they, they could have hardships coming into a, a local church body. So I want to respect that, and I get all that. But if you have someone that just persists in this sort of thing, um, they don't they don't love the people of God. They don't love uh, Jesus himself. I think that's fair to say. I think I could defend that from Scripture. But um, anyway, let's get back on track. I just want to comment on that. So... Um, God's uh, the salvation of God's people at the same time means um, judgment against the ungodly or judgment on the ungodly. Um, and so let's look at some of that. I want to – keeping all of that in mind, let's look at some of the sort of logistics and specifics here of the, the goat rite is what I'm calling it, just the goat portion of this larger Day of Atonement rite. Um, so uh, I didn't proofread this slide very well. I did proofread it, so – but I didn't go over it like, I, like a guy like me needs to. So bear with me if there's some typos. But this step one, Aaron selects two goats as a sin or purification offering for the people. That's in verse five. Step two, Aaron brings them, the goats, before the Lord to the entrance of the tabernacle, verse seven. Step three, uh, Aaron casts lots over the goats in order to select one for Yahweh and the other is for Azazel. And we'll talk about who or what Azazel is in a little bit. Step four, the goat for Yahweh uh, is sacrificed as a sin offering. Step five, Aaron then carries the blood of Yahweh's goat inside of the Holy of Holies and sprinkles it seven times on the front of the mercy seat that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Step six, Aaron then carries the goat's blood out of the tabernacle. He smears some of it on the horns of the altar of Ascension. So that's the altar in the courtyard. Uh, And uh, finally, he sprinkles some of the blood seven times on that altar after smearing on the horns. Uh, The next thing Aaron does is he presents the live goat to the Lord. I think this means he just um, uh, maybe brings it closer to the the entrance of the tent or something. I don't really know. Um, But uh, because he's already presented both of them to the Lord earlier in the chapter. So I don't know exactly what this means other than maybe he brings it a little closer to the entrance of the tent. I don't know. Step eight, Aaron lays both of his hands on the head of the goat and confesses all all of Israel's sins over it. And this... Transfers. This is where uh, notice how I I mentioned that he he presses both hands in the hand leaning right for the ascension offering and stuff where they just lean one hand in. We said there's not a transfer of sin there that defeats the logic of this whole sacrificial system, because if you're putting your sins on the animal who will enter into the holy place then you're just sending a dirty, sin filled animal into the holy place, that's that's not the way it should work. Notice what happens here. We're told very clearly that the sins are transferred to uh, this goat, and it happens when both hands are pressed. And this goat, though, as you know, doesn't end up inside of God's Eden again, the Eden of the tabernacle. He ends up in the wilderness. He goes the opposite direction. Um, So, uh, okay. Good. Are we tracking so far? This is good. Okay. Anyone have any questions so far? No, what? Uh, okay, yeah, lots. I have lots of questions too. You're not alone. All right, so one of the things I want to draw your attention to in this sort of goat rite part of the larger rite is the direction in which Aaron takes the blood of the sin offerings. Uh, this is the, both of the sin offerings he offers, the bull for him and his family and then the, the goat for the people. Um, Once he carries the um, blood inside of the tabernacle all the way into the Holy of Holies this time, okay? And we saw in the uh, other purification offerings, he would just carry it into the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. Um, Once he carries it into the Holy of Holies, the direction he's moving starts to change, okay? Um, Verse 14 says that he shall, quote, uh, shall take some of the blood of the bull uh, and sprinkle it uh, with his finger on the front of the mercy seat On the east side and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. He does that with both the bull for him and his family and the goat for the people. After he does this, just think about the cardinal directions here, north, south, east, and west. He goes out to the courtyard, right? And he starts doing the same thing there. He starts inside. He cleanses the Holy of Holies. It's accumulated all this sin impurity defilement and he moves which direction now if you got to go west to go into the holy of holies which way is he carrying the blood now east he's going east now um until nadab and abihu disobeyed god and defiled the tabernacle it was a holy and clean space it just took on these defilements after that um and uh i want you to see that in order for um anything including sin To enter the tabernacle. It had to go west. This included Nadab and Abihu. They had to go west. To get their sinfulness. And their breaking of the commandments in. Everything's got to go west. But the direction's reversed. And I think what this shows us. Is that this blood. That has the power to cleanse and purify. um, It does this traveling east. um, And as it does this. It's reversing. It's reversing the effects of sin. Pollution of the, the world and God's presence and ultimately his people who are supposed to dwell with him happens from the east to the west, but now redemption happens from the west to the east. It goes out from God's life-giving presence, right, and then uh, goes out to the courtyard, and then we're going to see in just a moment how it actually gets carried outside of the camp of the people, um, which we could take and understand as the city of God, and it 's carried away from them they 're totally alienated from their sin, and so um, the uh, really the defilement of Eden gets reversed that 's what we 're seeing here. so far, does that make sense? okay so and um, you've, you've probably heard me say this before a few weeks ago. I, I was like tapping the table in the other room um, talking about how uh, God is through the liturgy, restoring all of reality. Um, And I said that, uh, I've said a a number of times that uh, all of reality sits downstream from the liturgy. Uh, Well, uh, what we're seeing here in Leviticus is part of the reason I say those kinds of crazy things. um, I realize I probably, it sounds a little maybe, I don't know, cryptic or something. I don't mean it to, but I'm going to try to flesh that out. Uh, So... um, all of reality, what I mean by when I say these kinds of things, that all of reality is being restored and renewed by God's life-giving presence as it goes forth in the proclamation of the gospel. That's really what I mean. Um, and um, God's presence is concentrated in the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is where Jesus himself promises that he'll be present with us. Okay, uh, It's not to say he won't be present with us elsewhere, but he's identified the supper as a special place, um, a, the covenantal place that, uh, uh, that, uh, In which he will dwell with his people That's a big deal He's invoking this covenant here um, And um, That Basically the supper is telling us That Jesus has broken into the world And is doing all of uh, And fulfilling all the promises that he's made And forgiving sins uh, Bringing about his royal and just rule on the earth um, He's king jesus how appropriate for today um and that he's uniting a fractured humanity around a common table and meal he's promised to do these things and that's what he's doing and so what's interesting that it occurred to me that as we uh as we we think about worship on sunday mornings um i think we should probably uh Always, we should consider ourselves to always be. Uh, we should consider ourselves to always be in the West. We're in the westward country um, when we worship on Sunday mornings. We're in God's presence, and what we do here goes out. We carry that life, that Eucharistic life. We carry that life of God that is given to us in the Supper. We carry that out into the world, into our city. And as we work um, uh, and, and bring Sabbath rest to people through the proclamation of the gospel, um, that happens in all kinds of ways, um, then uh, what we do is we, we, we renew the world this way. The body of Christ renews the world. Um, and in this, this is the kind of thing I mean when I say that um, all of reality sits downstream from the liturgy and that God is renewing the world from that table. Um, I think we see just a little glimpse of this logic in in, uh, the Day of Atonement, right, in Leviticus, that makes some sense. Um, Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, Let's move on. So I want to talk about the goat for for Azazel. Um, Good, we're doing okay on time. So the goat for Azazel was sent into the wilderness, um, and we'll talk about the significance of that in just a moment, but I wanted to pause and say something about just the concept of Azazel. There's a lot of uh, scholarly debate about who or what Azazel is or was, um, and I'm partial to the view that it was probably some sort of demon figure um, that was associated with the wilderness and uh, like the wilderness being Azazel's territory, or I heard Chad Bird say one time, Azazel's stomping grounds. I thought that was a good way of putting it. Um, and, uh, but I'll say more about this in a second, but I don't, I don't really think this matters. I don't think we have to get to the bottom of this. for really understanding the text of Leviticus, and that's really what we care about, reading the Bible well. Uh, you don't have to get to the bottom of it. It might enrich our reading a bit if we did, Um, But we don't have to, to really understand this Day of Atonement right. Um, And so this is uh, what Michael Morales has to say about it. I thought this was good. The term Azazel is problematic and has defied scholarly consensus with regard to its meaning. There are four major suggestions uh, to its significance, with some variety within each. One, Azazel may refer to a demon or to a god of wrath, perhaps even Yahweh's own displeasure via an alter ego, I don't love the talk of God having alter egos, but um, he's not endorsing this view. He's just saying this is a view. Two, Azazel may refer to a place, a rocky precipice or, uh, or the uninha- uh, uninhabited wilderness. At some point in Israel's history, they started to uh, 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 throw the, or, you know, push the, the, the goat off of a cliff uh, onto rocks to make sure that it was dead. It didn't wander back in the camp. They also tied some scarlet to it, a scarlet cord to it and so on. But... Um, Three, Azazel may uh, simply mean utter destruction. Four, Azazel may signify the goat that is sent away. And here, this is what I think is important for us. Whatever the precise import of the term Azazel, the basic significance of the Azazel rite is not difficult to discern. The second goat is used to placard the removal of Israel's sins and guilt. Um, that much seems very obvious from the text. Verse 22 says exactly that. Quote, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The goat's carrying their iniquities away. That's what's important. Um, at least I think that's what's important. So one of the things we should note about this, and we're going to call the, this goat for Azazel the scapegoat. That's often how it's translated. Um, but one of the things, the note about the scapegoat's movement in the wilderness is, is that it's eastward, right? It's eastward. It's just, he can this scapegoat continues the movement that Aaron started with the blood and the Holy of Holies. The sin of the people is being driven away from God's dwelling place in his people. And uh, because the goat is traveling east, we should see this goat as undergoing judgment. Um, the scapegoat is entering, What what's one form of judgment in, in the Bible? It's exile, but not just any old exile, like drinking coconuts on an island, this is exile, typically means violent death in the Bible. I mean, just uh, just take, uh, go back to, let's see, we could do this with a lot of passages. Genesis 4. Um, uh, well, look, we can go back even further. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. They end up dying. Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. He's exiled to the east to wander in the land of Nod. What's he worried about? What's he complaining about? God actually offers him a mark of protection, which he ultimately rejects. But what's he, what's he worried about? He's worried about people killing him, right? And then you fast forward just a couple of chapters to chapter 6, and what do you have? You have a world that's in exile. It's east of Eden, full of violence, such that God says, well, I know what I'm going to do with these people. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to rid the earth of these wicked, violent men. Um, So when we hear about the goat going east, we should be understanding this goat is going into an exile unto death. So sin uh, is being judged with the ultimate judgment. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Let's see. Now, um, I sort of brushed through all that. So, um, okay. Let's stop there. And I have just a few minutes to sort of wrap things up here um, with uh, the rest of the book. Um, I'll say this. All of this foreshadows the cleansing of humanity in Christ and the cleansing and establishing of the city of God that comes through Christ um, and ultimately through his church. So let's... um, you, you could probably see some of these images already from uh, your knowledge of the New Testament. Um, so let me jump into the last third um, of the book of Leviticus and um, talk about sacred time. Um, so as I did with the dietary laws last week, I'm going to have to do like a 30,000-foot view of Israel's feasts and calendar. And to be honest, this is – I think – I think calendars are just hard to understand, the development of calendars, different calendars. uh, You know, uh, I'm not a rocket scientist or, you know, uh, an astronomy guy, but um, I find it hard to understand. Um, But I think what I'll say today is going to be clear enough. I think I can grab, I I have some grasp of sort of the biblical um, framework. But. a number of commentators include uh, uh, an Anglican clergyman whom uh, I'm fairly fond of these days, Jack Furnicevich. They've, they've pointed out that Israel's calendar has this sevenly and Sabbath character to it. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. I mean, when you think of the number seven, you should be thinking of Sabbath. You know, I mean, God creates the world in six days, and what's he do on the seventh day? He rests. He Sabbaths, right? So let me just read this to you, um, and you can read along. Um, There are seven ways in which Yahweh bases... So we're moving into chapter 23 now. We're moving into chapter 23. And here's the big picture so that I don't end up forgetting to say this before we leave. Um, What you have after the Day of Atonement is the the, the solution to Israel's problem. It's resolved, okay? Uh, The problem of sin and death has been resolved at least until the next Day of Atonement, Okay? Now, um, this is a sort of lasting atonement, in, you know, relatively speaking, um, but uh, what you have after this is sort of the result of all of this. What, what, it, what follows out of Israel being cleansed and allowed to live in God's presence uh, another year? Um, well, all of, these, uh, all of this rest giving that you read about in the last third of the book, rest giving follows from atonement. Okay, um, that's maybe a simple way to put it. Um, so let's, let's read what Fridnosevich says about this. Um, there are seven ways in which Yahweh bases his appointed feasts on the number seven. One, every seventh day is a Sabbath. Two, Yahweh's annual calendar, that's, li- that's laid out in Leviticus 23, consists of descriptions of seven festal times. The Sabbath, Passover, and Unleavened Bread, those are sort of collapsed together. First fruits. Uh, uh, Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, again, those are one. Uh, Feast of Trumpets, and then uh, the Day of Coverings or the Day of Atonement gets its own little, that's part of the calendar, its own little feast, uh, and booths and tabernacle. Three, every seventh year is a Sabbath year of rest for the parts of the land that bear crops. Seventh day for persons and animals, seventh year for the land. Four, after every seven sevens of years, the leader of Israel is to proclaim the 50th year a year of jubilee. Five, the feasts of unleavened bread and the feast of tabernacles, the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of tabernacles, the only two feasts spanning more than one day, are each celebrated for seven days. There two, two Independence uh, Week uh, celebrations consisted of annual returns to cheap pantry uh, bread and homemade tents. I love this part. Humble reminders that Yahweh created them from scratch and not they themselves, consistent with some of the stuff Nick was talking about in his sermon this morning. Six, just as the Jubilee is celebrated every seven years, Pentecost is celebrated every seven sevens of of days. Seven, the seventh month of the year, um, I don't know the correct, correct pronunciation, Tishri. I should have just said it with confidence. You probably would have known, right? Uh, Contains the largest number of Israel's feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, Here's a little uh, list I've put up here that um, shows another sort of Sabbath connection. So um, out of the seven feasts, uh, major feasts of Israel's calendar, that characterizes Israel's calendar, six of them have a prohibition on working. Okay, either a total prohibition, like in the Day of Atonement, or a partial prohibition. Like you don't do any ordinary work. Um, I don't know exactly what that means, but I have some ideas, but you get the idea. Um, and elsewhere in Scripture, we, uh, we read about Yahweh uh, commanding Israel to observe uh, his Sabbaths, plural. All of these things are considered Sabbaths. Um, but why? Well... Uh, I think the purpose of Yahweh's calendar has basically, it's twofold. Uh, one, it provides, like, actual rest, like, real rest. God, you know, we don't serve a Gnostic God, okay? He actually provides rest to people. Um, he frees us up to do real work in the world, like, the kind of work that, like, could take our lives. Like, that kind of work. It's that real, um, God's never been a Gnostic himself. He doesn't care for Gnostics too much. Um, He actually, he gives this calendar, he sets this calendar up that's governed by the the moon and the stars and so on, the lights, the celestial bodies, to actually bring real rest to real people and to real land. And he does it because real people and real land need that real rest. Um, And the second reason I think he does this, he gives this calendar as he does. Um, This is... uh, Their calendar starts, you learn in Exodus 12, I believe, in the Passover passage, that their calendar um, starts there at Passover. But um, uh, he does this because it has this second purpose. It's a teaching function. It teaches them that um, they're no longer under the rule of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the great uh, anti-Sabbath figure in Scripture. He's the one who doesn't want God's people to rest. He's too busy building a kingdom for himself, right? He's using God's people to do it, but he's doing it again by not giving them rest. Um, God is continually reminding his people, uh, well, that his yoke is light. Uh, they've got work to do for sure, but, um, but the work they have to do, his, 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 his work, his yoke is, is light. Um, that idea is present, not just in the New Testament, uh, it's present here in the Old Testament. Um, God is showing them that, hey, I'm making you into a kingdom of priests and so on, right? Pharaoh was going to use you to make him build up his own kingdom, but I'm making you into a kingdom of priests and I'm the one doing it. That's the idea. Um, And uh, as I do this, I'm going to give you the rest that you need and want. He's not a harsh master. Um, Okay, so let's see where we are with time. I have less than one minute, so I'll just wrap up. Um, I wanted to say some things about the sun, moon, and stars, but I don't have time to do that. So um, Leviticus 24, um, is uh, there's this picture of, uh, all of a sudden, we, we get the calendar stuff in 23. Chapter 24 of Leviticus talks about the bread of the presence and the lampstand in the holy place. And then chapter 25 goes back to talking about the calendar again, the jubilee year, specific instructions for it. Does that strike you as strange just to hear it laid out that way? Calendar, and we we move from the the calendar and feast to talking about the lampstand and the bread that's inside of the tabernacle, back to talking about the calendar again, the jubilee year. Just on the face of it, it, that strikes me as strange. I suppose it does you too. So why? Why does Moses lay the book out this way? This is intentional, I think. Um, because here here are the symbols, and I'm going to blow through this quickly and not show you all the evidence, but the menorah that's in the holy place has seven candles on it. They represent in part the the celestial bodies. I think they also represent the seven spirits of God that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They basically represent God's presence, his governing presence. Um, But remember, God's a good and just ruler, just like Israel's kings should have been. Now, Aaron's given specific instructions on where the, that light has to uh, has to shine. The light from the menorah, um, from the lampstand, has to shine directly in front of it, onto this bread that's sitting on the table of showbread. And you got two piles of bread, six loaves or cakes in each pile. And they've got incense and or you know myrrh and stuff in them. They're 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 all nice and they smell good. Okay, um, and basically what we have. Here is a picture of what Sabbath rest looks like. Um, Israel is basking, as Michael Morales says, in the light and blessing of Yahweh, the God who's characterized throughout Scripture as a fire, right? They're basking in his rule, his presence, and ultimately his protection. And that's why, because again, Israel's calendar is Sabbath in nature, that's why the lampstand and the bread chapter is not really out of place. This is what all of the the calendar is supposed to uh, remind the people of and bring them into. Rest. The rest that God provides that they cannot provide themselves. If they try to do it, provide rest for themselves or rest for anyone else, if they try to do this on their own, they'll just end up like Pharaoh. They'll end up oppressing people, and then they'll end up drowning uh, in the sea under God's judgment. Um, so anyway, that's all I've got. Uh, thank you all so much. It's, it's been uh, fun and interesting, and I hope you've enjoyed some, some of it and gotten something from it. So thanks so much.